Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa Suela, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Sam Morris. Hello. Our other co-host, Andy, is not currently with us as he is taking advantage of our generous monkey non-paid parental leave policy. He just had a baby last week, or the week before we recorded this. We look forward to the day when his daughter will take his place as host on this show. But, fear not, joining us is our special guest, James McKeon of the Lesby Honest podcast and the Archive Admirers podcast. Thanks for coming on with us today, James. Oh, for nothing at all. It, it, it's an honor to actually be on a podcast and discuss something that I really like. So, thank you. Yeah, definitely. We're very excited uh, that you're joining us today. So today, in today's episode, James is going to say hello to Mr. Robot. Sam is learning about tradition, and I get a contact high from watching Head. All right. So James, on this podcast, we talk a lot about lists. We talk a lot about pop culture lists, movie lists, TV show lists, music, video games, you name it. We talk about it. Everybody has these like long, long lists. What's sort of your approach to keeping track of the pop culture that you want to engage with? Like primarily the media that I engage with most are TV and video games. And with TV specifically, I have just a very long list on my phone on the notes app where I have all of the shows that I'm watching or want to watch uh, with like brackets for when they come out and stuff. And I keep track of it there. It's, it's a very, very long list. And every month I'll go on uh, Rotten Tomatoes has this wonderful feature on their website where it updates every month with the new TV coming out. So then I'll just add that on. I've kind of been in a bit of a slump lately though, uh, since the start of the year, because I had scholarship exams and that kind of took the wind out of me. So I haven't really been catching up uh, on a lot of TV and stuff. It's kind of fallen by the wayside, you know? Yeah, and and the thing about it is now there's so much coming out every week. It's easy to get that list just gets longer and longer. I use I used an app for a while to do that. So I'm I'm glad you to hear that you're a list maker. Every time we have a guest on, we debate about who are there more of us list makers out there or more people like Tessa who just as we say live in chaos. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's it's really cool to hear you know that that approach to list making i am very familiar with the list in an app and also not having time for for academic reasons so i know you're going to talk about mr robot today but even though your productivity has gone down this year anything else you've seen that you like it's not really it's not really like anything stand out so far you know a couple of years back i was really like i was really into legion i like kind of tv that pushes the boundaries of what tv as a medium can do and mr robot does that as well uh legion did that nothing i can tell you the the things that i was disappointed by on tv and that started like right at the start of the year with bbc's dracula adaptation (laughs) we we talked about that on another podcast yeah at the beginning of the year boy that was that was not good it was very bad (laughs) <laughs> mm. like i was talking to all of my friends and they're because i was like okay this looks interesting the trailer sold it as a horror and just trailers as a whole they kind of they'll, they'll make or break the way you perceive especially tv films not so much because you have the whole marvel effect of like we've shot all this fake footage so it doesn't leak to the press whereas tv it's like they'll put out something and they'll hit you straight in the face with, this is the genre of the thing. And Dracula was billed as a horror. Like all the creepy stuff with the bugs crawling out, like around people's eyes and stuff. And then, I don't know, I watched all three episodes of it. Why do I hate myself? <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way. Yeah, we were like, we spent more than three hours watching this. Like, I want my three hours back. It was like an hour and a half an episode. Ah, yeah. If I wanted to watch another season of Sherlock, I'd watch another season of Sherlock. Mm. Uh, you know, that was part of the problem, too, I think. Oh, he... Uh, yeah. Um... <laughs> but yeah, in short, that 
the year has just kind of been marked by disappointing TV series uh, instead of like anything really good because I haven't got the chance to watch anything that like I've heard good reviews about a bunch of stuff, but you know, just haven't been productive enough to watch them. What are the shows that you're most interested in watching? Like, what are the ones that have come out that have definitely made your list so far? My list for like best TV. Yes. The ones you hope won't disappoint you this time. Like like before I was saying Legion, you know, that kind of it diversified what superhero TV was doing. And I know that like the Marvel Netflix shows, they were, um, you know, at the start, they were really good because they took the gritty approach that Arrow took. And it's kind of refreshing because all of the superhero films, they're they're light and jokey. I really, really enjoyed The Magicians because it was... The, the the sci-fi series the magicians it was like we've taken the premise of like what if you had magic and then went will it really solve all of your problems and then that got cancelled i'm looking forward to to trying to watch the rest of true detective i watched season one of true detective at the end of last year i heard you know i've heard it isn't as good afterwards but still like i don't know it's sort of like a dark detective show, not a crime procedural kind of one. I like those, you know, anything really with fantasy in it either or kind of supernatural elements. Yeah, we're very big genre fans here at the at the, popca- uh, the podcast. When you watch TV, this is something that Sam wrote about on the Pop Culturist website uh, a, a couple weeks ago, I guess, when this episode drops. Do you prefer your TV to be longer form, like an, a 45 minutes to an hour, or even longer, like some of those BBC episodes are like an hour and a half long, or do you prefer, prefer TV with shorter episodes? Like a lot of TV, like The Mandalorian, for an example, is kind of going more towards that half hour time slot. Do you prefer sort of those longer episodic television shows or the shorter ones, or does it matter to you? I it's not that it matters to me it's more so it like for me it depends on what kind of story they're telling I feel like if you're telling kind of a grander narrative where it's like here's all it touches all these different things I prefer to have like an hour long episode 45 minutes to an hour that's good for that but you know that has problems in and of itself where things can get really stretched out uh HBO's The Outsider Oh god, I hated that too. We couldn't finish it. We we got to like the fourth episode and we were just like, this is too long. Yeah, like I read the book and it was really, really captivating. And so I was like, oh, cool. It you know, it's being produced by Ben Mendelssohn and Jason Bateman and the trailer again sold it as really good, but they just bungled the mystery and it went on for far too long. And then there was talks of it getting renewed for a second season, and then there like the other day. It said HBO passes on a season two. I'm like, where are you going to go? Yeah, that that was really funny because I thought the same thing. I was like, wait, what? What do you have? And it's supposed to be about Holly. And I'm like, but they did a whole like other TV show about her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because she, she's from a different series, but they're going to make like a second version of this character and spin her off on another network. I don't know, like they could they could adapt the short story from If It Bleeds, but again, mm. I don't know. I wasn't particularly impressed with that short story either, so. Well, fa- fair enough. I mean, I think that one of the problems we've been having is just during this time with all the, uh, because we, we both teach, that with all the academic stress and all of the existential stress from living in, we're in the U.S., you know, during a pandemic and staying in all the time. It's been really difficult to to watch some longer form television, um, just that even, you know, 45 minutes to an hour sometimes feels like it's such a huge commitment. But yeah, I think you're right. It kind of depends on the story. And I think there are television shows, too, where even when the episodes are very long, they don't feel like they're wrong. They're long. Yeah. Like uh, Killing Eve is a good example of that, where at least the first season where when you're watching it, you don't feel like the episode you watched was an hour. It felt like it was 20 minutes. And Game of Thrones was the same way for me, too, where even though the episodes were really long, I didn't feel like 
anything was misplaced. Again, at least for the first few seasons. Later on, they kind of fell off in quality. But I think that that's how you can kind of tell when the story writing is really tight. Yeah, story writing will do it a lot, I think. So, James, I'm going to tell you because you mentioned True Detective earlier. So, you know, you could probably give season two a pass and just maybe skip that one. Season three is a lot better, I think, objectively. But we enjoyed watching it because it it was set in the uh, area where we lived at the time. In fact, there's a there's a scene set in a bookstore that that we have been to oh. several times. Um, and so it was very familiar in that way. Um, so we enjoyed it for that reason. But like Mahershala Ali is just awesome. So so season three of True Detective, I think we both recommend that. We'll certainly have to give that a look then. Russian Doll. That was another one we watched yeah. that was over. Is it, Was that over a half hour? No, was it a half so. hour? Yeah, that was another one where I was like, this is actually really good, well-written storytelling. And I didn't feel like it was that stretched either. So I would highly recommend Netflix's Russian Doll, especially if you like (laughs) genre-bending storytelling. All right, James, you watched, speaking of genre-bending storytelling, you watched, for this week's Monkey, season one of Mr. Robot. I have never seen Mr. Robot. Uh, So could you give us like a a quick synopsis of what the show is? Yeah, okay, so it's about this guy, Elliot, who's played by Rami Malek, and he works in tech support, and they're doing cybersecurity for this big, multinational, multi-billion dollar conglomeration. It's meant to be like a a stand-in for Amazon, I guess, but then he gets drawn into this group of hackers, F Society, who are trying to take take down the company by hacking them, basically. Is this set in the future? No, it's set in kind of present day uh, New York. Yeah, New York. Because they go to Long Island and stuff. That's how I know it's New York. <laughs> yeah, I, I for some reason I thought this was like set in like the future, like almost a Westworld type of, of story. So that's that's interesting that it's like a present day type of story. So uh, tell us about Rami Malek. He's won a lot of awards and gotten a lot of acclaim for this. How, what is his character like? So he's kind of like, kind of like the archetypical, like socially awkward kind of like techie guy. That's what he's supposed to appear as on the surface uh, to everyone. He, you know, he's struggling with mental health issues. He He's very bad at social interactions, doesn't like uh, physical contact, things like that. But the way he plays it, it's not like leaning aggressively into that trope and making it kind of a parody in an ableist way. You know, he he plays it very well. He, you know, he stands there. He's got this almost otherworldly detachment from everything because, you, you know, at the start of it, he starts talking to the audience you know as kind of like a fourth wall narration and so you have that and you can just you see him and he's just standing there as everything happens around him and you can just hear his thoughts it's a it's it's a strange dynamic that it has but it's also just very very intriguing to watch as the series goes on but i won't say for for why (laughs) Yeah, and and of course it's it's tricky to talk about this show without giving much away if you if you've seen more than a couple episodes. But one of the big stories about this show when it first premiered was that this was kind of a comeback for Christian Slater who, you know, was was pretty popular in the 80s and somewhat popular in the 90s and it kind of disappeared for a bit. But to come back to this role, what can you what what can you say about his character? Um, I I mean I I really loved what he did on this show. What did you think? I really liked it. Like I I don't have much of a connection to Christian Slater. I don't think I've seen him in anything. Like I could be wrong and just not remember. But Christian Slater in Mister Robot, he's fantastic. He's kind of like the in for Elliot into the hacking uh into the hacking world like political activist hacking and he's just he's sort of set up as the character that he knows everything he knows where all the pieces are on the board so there's like this intense smugness to him 
and also like a lot of restrained kind of psychopathic tendencies he's you know just like simmering on the edge of unhinged it's a delight to watch but at the same time you're watching it and every time he's on screen you feel slightly on edge because you're like you know what's he gonna do next that is that's such a great description i definitely have had a little bit more of a history with christian slater but watching him grow into this role it felt like a combination of like Jack Nicholson and Nicolas Cage, like just like almost unhinged, just like you said. I, <laughs> oh my god, yes, you're just waiting for him to flip out. You know, it's gonna happen at some stage, but you don't know when. And that's that's the real like landmine in his character. So, even though this is set in like a present day New York, is this would you classify this as sci-fi or just as like a crime? Like how would you, what genre would you most associate this show with? I'm not sure what, like it's definitely not sci-fi. It's more, I don't know, kind of crime, cyber crime, but in the same way that it's like the, the protagonist we're following is the one doing the hacking and it's, you know, slightly illegal, but he's going up against like a bigger uh, corporate evil. So in in a way, it feels more like activism, you know, because it touches on a lot of social injustices. So it, it it feels like here's this show that it's kind of crimey in genre when it's not like bending into other weird genres and ways of storytelling. But, you know, it feels closest to maybe a crime, social crime. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. And I think I think the hacktivist is like a real trope that has started to emerge in the last 10 years especially like this idea of like a hacker who's doing like who who's going against the government or going against corporate i, I don't know corporate evil like you said it's to borrow the term that you had i think oh there that has shown up started to show up in a lot of te- television shows and movies especially um, because hackers were always kind of bad i think for a while and then we kind of came back around to this idea that maybe hacking could be used for for social justice. So I think I think that's really interesting that they're developing this trope in that way. The show does a lot to like it's strange that it, it like it does both of these at the same time. It kind of demystifies our concept of hacking where it's like it's not this grand kind of like really cerebral thing, you know, it's a bunch of ordinary citizens who've learned these skills and they can do these things. That, you know, in theory, you could also learn how to do. It's not like Superman who was born with these powers or whatever. But at the same time, when it does, when they do like really cool hacking stuff, you're like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's so cool. And so it builds up an air of mystique while at the same time tearing it down around hackers. Yeah. And so this, so the first season came out in 2015. And I trying to think back to 2015, I think there was still very much you know, the Elizabeth Salander, you know, girl with the dragon tattoo thing was still fairly, fairly popular, at least over here anyway. And I think there was still a lot of public favor for like an Edward Snowden at that point. That has certainly changed during Mr. Robot's run, but it kind of felt like, you know, yeah, there was some sympathy toward this at at 2015. And I, I wonder if maybe that hasn't changed over the last five years. And of course, this show ran all the way through 2019. So, you know, that's a that's an interesting to see to see this show run and how it's evolved. Which I guess is a good question to ask. Uh, do you intend on watching the other three seasons? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, because like, especially on the social commentary angle, it's like, you know, when you see them in in season one and they like cut to news footage and stuff, and they're deliberately making this out like a very real hypothetical like this is what's going to happen if such a situation arises and they cut it in between stuff that's like you know very clearly did happen they have protests where people have signs saying you know free julian assange and stuff in the the footage they cut between so it's it mr robot as a show seems very tied into like the cultural cultural awareness that it's in in a way that I don't think a lot of shows that take place in present day time, um, present day time frames do. All right. So, would you? Who would you recommend this show to? If you were to to think about who might like this show, I mean, 
I don't want to say everyone, but I think what Mr. Robot presents, it it's so unique in the way that it like builds its story and executes it across the the 10 episodes of the first season that I feel like everyone should give it a try because it touches on a lot of issues that, you know, everyday people experience like crippling student debt, uh, you know, big pharma, the you know, like corporate giants like Amazon basically selling our humanity to us. But at the same time, you know, as a show, it's constructed with, you know, this is, a, you know, this is the main character. He's narrating to us things that are happening. And I know a lot of people don't like that. So I guess safe bets, the people who definitely enjoyed who haven't seen it, uh, fans of genre television, people who like kind of sci-fi-esque films, not like far future sci-fi films, but, you know, like what ifs of sci-fi films. And one other thing I wanted to say about this, because the first season when I watched it, I remember thinking this. And by the way, the second season, like they they take some of the stuff they do in the first season and just go to the next level with it. There's some truly just bananas good things that happen in season two that are very unsettling. But I, I, I'm not sure I'd really noticed. I was aware of it, but I wouldn't have consciously paid much attention to it. And then I heard somebody talking about it. There are so many shots in the show where the person who's talking or the subject of the frame is like in the corner yeah and then like the bottom left corner just blank space yeah and and how that's just supposed to make you the person watching it just deeply uncomfortable and i just thought that was neat yeah it's definitely a show that it gets under your skin and it doesn't try it in the way that like horror will do where they try and make like a visceral experience it's just like mr robot what it does it just like puts you into and i think it's partly due to rami malik and all of the actors playing it so well that you uh, like you really get into their heads and so you feel uh you know every time something comes up that puts a spanner in the works you get these like needles of anxiety it just like digs into you and you're like oh tension i like it well, I'm I'm excited. You you have reminded me that this show exists, and now I want to go watch it all of it right now. All right, let's turn to Sam. What made you decide to watch Fiddler on the Roof this week? Okay, so we we've talked about this on the podcast before. So, but here's a quick refresher. Uh, one of the ways that we decided to kind of cut through that giant list of movies that we wanted to see was we have we have two. Uh, we have a giant stein and then another pint glass. And one, the, the, the stein has new movies and the pint glass has older movies, you know, on slips of paper. We each throw five in and then we just draw once a week. Oh, that's such a good way of doing it. Uh, it's, it's like the, I don't know if you've ever done this one, but it's the thing where nobody can decide where they want to go to eat. So you just put a bunch of restaurants in a hat and you pull one. And that's it. So I was like, well, it'll work for movies. Mm. So It's great. It takes a lot of stressful scrolling through movie databases out of the equation. Oh, yeah. The amount of times I've like doom scrolled through like Netflix or Prime or whatever. And I'm like, no, don't want to watch that. Don't want to watch that. I've seen that. And then you just don't watch anything because you've spent like two hours going through different categories. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I will tell you it. It, it backfired last week um, because uh, a couple of months ago, when we were in a much better place emotionally, I threw in, because I'd always wanted to see the um, 1999 Japanese film Audition, which is like just very, very uncomfortable horror. And then when I pulled it last week, I'm like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> uh, so so it, it does occasionally backfire. Mm. But but the great thing about this this is, is you know, it's a good chance to watch m movies that you've meant to get around to, but occasionally one of us will slip in a movie that we've seen before. We just want to force the other one to watch. Mm, or just for comfort. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so th there's a lot of different things you can do, but, but Fiddler on the Roof is a movie I watched because Tessa put it into the pint glass because I had never seen it, and she thought that was wrong. <laughs> Well, to be also to to remind the audience, Sam has very little 
experience with musicals. So I have made him watch a lot of musicals over the time that we've been together. He also saw Phantom of the Opera for the first time this year. So, it, you know, we're, we're slowly working our way through some of the, the more classic musicals. And this was one that I thought it was time for him to see. So when we drew that out of the, out of the pint glass, tell me the truth. Were you upset when we, you saw what we were going to watch? <laughs> so, you know, this is a three-hour investment. Three hours? Yeah, I don't know that we... Yeah. It's a long musical. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> I think... Well, you know, actually, this was an easier film to watch than Phantom. And Phantom wasn't bad, to be clear. Like, I enjoyed that, too. But, but the three-hour running time of Fiddler on the Roof felt shorter than the running time for Phantom, which is two and a half-ish, I think. So, you know, but it's one that, you know, it's, it's one that people talk about. And, you know, I've spent enough, I've spent a, a fair few moments with, with uh, theater people. I've heard the songs. Did I know they were from Fiddler? No. But, <laughs> you know, it's... it's, it's Tangentially I, I aware. aware of musicals. This is- yeah. Right, and so like you know, I I'm never disappointed to get a to get a joke or get a reference, and you know, just it's very well spoken of. So, no, I I, I wasn't disappointed. I was a little daunted, but it it was really it was it was good. All right, so three hour movie. Give us your best, quickest summary of the plot. I know I have trouble summarizing things quickly, but I got this in. 1905 Ukraine, Tevia, a Jewish milkman, has five daughters. And of course, the problem with a father with five daughters is, in, in 1905 Ukraine, in a Jewish community, is who are they going to marry? The oldest daughter is betrothed to a wealthy but elderly widowed butcher, but she instead wants to marry a would-be tailor. The second daughter, well... If, you're, if you don't like the idea of the would-be tailor, you're going to hate the fact that the second daughter wants to marry the Marxist who comes to town. <laughs> and if you think that's bad, yeah, if you think that's bad, the third daughter wants to marry a Christian. Shock horror. I know, it's, it's just <laughs> terrible. That's the plot. And I mean, the, only, the, the overriding issue that comes throughout the movie is, are the Jews safe? And so that's that's all your narrative tension there. There's there's plenty of plot, but it's around those two things. And then there's a lot of song and dance. So you're not the biggest fan of musicals. So what did you think of this one? As I said, there were songs when I heard them. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. If I were a rich man, you know, Gwen Stefani made sure that I was aware of that, that, that <laughs> melody. So that, that was probably the only thing that I knew coming in. Gwen Stefani is just responsible for so much of the cultural zeitgeist, and we don't know it yet. <laughs> I mean, she gives us so much and has asked for so little. If Andy were here, we would start talking about Ska, so it's probably really good that he's not. <laughs> <laughs> there's some, like I said, there's some good tunes in this movie. I mean, they're all solid. There's one tune during the wedding celebration that is aptly titled Wedding Celebration that's good. Uh, there's another one that stands out, uh, Tevia's Dream, which is like this, as you can guess, a, a dream sequence where, where dead relatives come back from the dead and sing and dance, and it's, it's super fun. This movie very briefly becomes a gothic horror flick, just for like five minutes, and then it goes back to being... Oh, we love to see it. I mean, old films really just love throwing in a little curveball just to make sure you're paying attention. Sometimes it's resolved with, it's just a dream. Or, you know, like in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, they're like, here we go, we have this fascist allegory. And then like, Anna, they're all asleep in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think dream sequences are also something that we don't do enough of anymore in movies. Like, just the ones that would terrify you as a child. I think Twilight has kind of spoiled that, though, uh, in Breaking Dawn Part 2, where they were like, Here's the bloody climactic fight. And no, it was a dream. And everyone kind of went, man, no, none of that. I also think, <laughs> I also think that, that Tim Burton has maybe kind of ruined the dream sequence because he just makes entire movies that are dream sequences. And it's like, dude, dial it down just a little bit. 
So should more people watch this film? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely more more people should watch this. I, I think it's, you know, Hayam Topol, uh, otherwise just known as Topol. Uh, he was one of those like like Cher, like Madonna, just known by one name. Plays Tevia. He was nominate. He was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, this film was nominated for Best Film. The actor who plays the the tailor who wants to marry the eldest daughter was also nominated, but it did win three Oscars. It won Ooh. for Best Music, Best Scoring Adaptation, and Best Original Score by a little known up and coming composer you might have heard of, John Williams. Um, what? So, yeah, I didn't. I had no idea. That man's everywhere. I know, and that's like it's night. Okay, so it's a 1964 musical, and it was adapted in 1971. So this is still a few years before Spielberg and Lucas start working with John Williams, and we get to really know what he's doing. So you know, yeah, like Star Wars was what 77. Yeah, exactly. So, like, he was already doing work and getting recognized. I mean, this guy is still, he's still kicking around, too. I mean, like... (laughs) He's still writing music. Yeah. But, you know, so there's just so much good, you know, the story's good, the songs are good. It's got bona fide people behind it. I haven't mentioned uh, the director, uh, Norman Jewison, who directed In the Heat of the Night, which is the, the film where Sidney Poitier plays a black detective who has to work with a very, very white, rural, southern, mostly racist police department in the 60s. Jewison also directed uh, Moonstruck, speaking of Nicolas Cage and Cher, um, <laughs> and Jesus Christ Superstar. Were we speaking of Nicolas Cage and Cher? Well, I did mention both of them in the last five minutes, uh, in, la- in this episode, in this very episode. There's a sneaky little Nicolas Cage there if you listen back. <laughs> Yeah, if you this is like a Mr. Robot thing, right? Like where if you're paying attention, something has happened in every episode that you don't notice until they want you to. Oh. Like, I'm pretty sure I have mentioned, I think I mentioned Nicolas Cage in every episode of Monkey Off My Backlog. It's possible. Nicolas Cage or Keanu Reeves, one of them. Uh. When, when, things, when things do that, when they put it in like in the background of every show and then you notice yeah. it and you're like, what's that? And then like 10 episodes down the line, it's totally like, the the first season of the Twilight Zone reboot did that, and I w- like when I was watching the episodes, I was like, "What is oh. that? Why are they?" And then at the end, they they, they spun it into this really just like terrifying, <laughs> terrifying tale, and I was like, "Oh God, okay, that's what it is." But you feel so smart when you see them. I know what we need to watch tonight. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one that's been on our list too. So now I'm a little bit more interested in that than I was. But yeah, this is a really good movie. And it's not that I was expecting that it wouldn't be. It's just, it was, it was nice. It was enjoyable. I just realized before we go on to mine, I, I have to ask. So James, you did Mr. Robot and Sam did The Fiddler on the Roof. Both titles of shows are <laughs> about like a specific person. So James, who is Mr. Robot in the show? If that's not a spoilery question. <laughs> Not not really. The guy that Christian Slater plays is Mr. Robot. So it's not Rami Malek's character. It's like it comes there's a, a patch on his jacket that says Mr. Robot. And you know, he's the in for Elliot, like I said, into the into the world. So he's he's also our in then into the narrative of the show. So hence Mr. Robot. Okay. So Mr. Robot is Christian Slater. Mm-hmm. Sam, who is the fiddler on the roof? Okay, so first of all, you need to, there is a literal fiddler on the roof. There is a guy who plays the fiddle on the roof. But he is a metaphor. He is a metaphor for tradition, Jewish tradition, and the things that come with that historically. You know, So I mentioned earlier that a big part of the film is, are the Jews safe? Well, the answer is, of course, no. And so the fiddler represents this idea of balance. You know, a fiddler has to... If you're a fiddler on the roof, you have to have good balance, otherwise you will fall off the roof. So, you know, being a Jew is is having balance and balancing tradition with just the ability to live amongst people who are at best indifferent to you and often at worst hostile to you and navigating that uncertainty. It's very precarious and, and the film's very concerned about that. So, you know, both 
both of both of our characters, both of our titular characters are in some ways metaphorical, symbolic. All right. Speaking of metaphors and symbolism, Tessa, <laughs> last week you talked about the 1960s television show based off the fake band that was at times a real band, the Monkees. Uh, so this week you continued by watching the the feature film that came out in 1968 after the television show had run its course. The movie is called Head. Why are you so interested in the monkey still? I thought that was my thing. <laughs> I was interested in watching Head mainly because uh, for once in my life, I felt like being a completionist and watching everything that had the monkeys in it. So we'd already watched the full two season run of the show, The Monkeys. And Head was just like one other thing that we could do. The other reason I wanted to watch it is because both Head and A Hard Day's Night, which I will probably watch at some point here in the next few months, have been on my list for a really long time. And I know that specifically uh, Rafelson and Schneider were inspired by A Hard Day's Night to make the Monkees TV show. So that was also part of it is that I, I really had wanted to watch both these sort of musical new wave films for a while. I actually originally wanted to watch them as a double feature, but since I went did had went ahead and did the Monkeys TV show, I decided to just just keep going. And I think actually if I could if I could interject something here, I would say that this is a really useful tool I found to crossing things off your list to use like the momentum so you can get the Monkeys off your backlog. Yes. Yeah. He said the name of the show. Yes, perfect. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that that's kind of part of it. I think is just like when you you know when you're like okay, I need to watch all of these movies. Like make it into a whole event. Like we watched all of Quentin Tarantino's films last year. Um, We I mean we had obviously seen some of them, but neither one of us had seen all of them. So we decided okay, we'll just watch all of them. We'll just one a night watch them and that has a lot of that kind of project has a lot of momentum to it you know after you get one or two under your belt you just want to keep going and I feel like that's what kind of happened with this television show is I wanted to keep going I wanted to finish out you know really the story of the monkeys and it is quite a story that they have so before we talk about the movie James I have a question for you because our our episode last week which I guess by the time people are hearing this, they will have heard the last week's episode last week, but it's still fresh in my mind because I haven't edited it yet. But I talked about the Beatles' White Album, and uh, you know Tessa talked about the Monkees' television show, and uh, one of Andy's friends who's in a metal band was on to talk with us, and you know we just kind of had a conversation about you know this many years on, you know who's who's really familiar with you know, probably heard of the Beatles, but who's really familiar with their work? And if you know the the Beatles, you know, who knows the monkeys anymore? Is that like a thing? So like, I, I, I'm just, I'm curious, just because we're having this conversation, like, you know, what's your experience with either of those bands? So I feel like, I feel like I'm kind of an oddity uh, in, in, in the sense that like, I project to a lot of people, old man vibes. And, <laughs> and like, I, like, I mean, I'm not intimately familiar with the Beatles, but I definitely like know a lot of their songs. And this is largely to do with the fact that like when I was six, I think I got a big Goodman, uh, stereo radio thing and it had two big speakers on it. And the, the, the first three CDs I got with it were the Beatles number one hits, Queen, Queen's greatest hits, volume one and Johnny Cash's greatest hits. So it like it kind of fostered this love for old music, you know, and like analog stuff, you know, like I'm really into collecting vinyl and I, I I ordered a vinyl there and it came with a cassette tape of the album too. I was really happy. So I, I feel like the Beatles, the kind of the Beatles are big and everyone says like, oh, that's kind of a phrase that people use. Oh, they're like the new Beatles or whatever um the monkeys not so much i've heard of the monkeys the one like hey hey we're the monkeys people say we're monkeying around i've heard that song and because like my father grew up in london in the 70s so you know he brought a lot of that with him but i don't think apart from i think in the minions movie they had uh that song but apart from that i think the monkeys have kind of faded 
from like culture like the Beatles have kind of they had a bit of a resurgence with uh, yesterday when that came out in was it 2019 uh, but the monkeys yeah. are just kind of gone. No one's talking about the monkeys. I I think so, and and it and I kind of wonder too. You know, like the the Beatles came, did that transatlantic flight, and just kind of took America by storm, and have never really left in terms of cultural consciousness. I'm not really sure that the monkeys returned the favor. And if you want to talk about niche, let's let's talk about this movie, Tessa. I got to I got to summarize Fiddler on the Roof. That was easy. Why don't you summarize head? Well, I can't. That's that's. I'm just gonna say that just right flat now. Out I cannot no. summarize this movie. No, that's not gonna happen. Fair. I will do my best to describe what kind of movie this is. So, uh, as Sam mentioned, Head was released in 1968. It was directed by Jack Nicholson. Yes, that Jack Nicholson made this movie. This was before The Shining and before. You know, any, I don't think he'd really been in anything yet that had made him famous. So he was a director before. What year was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? 70. Yeah, so not even that. Like, that's the one that put him on the map. Yeah, so 1975 was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, so this is much, much earlier than that. So, yeah, it's kind of odd because we think of actors who become directors, but Jack Nicholson, I did not know this, apparently had the opposite career where he was a director first and then and then got into acting. So it, it was directed by Jack Nicholson. It was written by Bob Rafelson, who also created the show with, uh, with Schneider uh, of the Monkees. It's a musical adventure film. That's how uh, several places on the internet described it as I was trying to, find, trying to find something to say. It's sort of a musical adventure film. But basically, this film really leans into that new wave, new Hollywood style of filmmaking that was just coming into being in the late 60s. So films like Easy Rider, The Graduate, you know, they, these films that we think of that, that sort of embrace some more eclectic filmmaking styles. And of course, I talked last week about how the, the show also broke a lot of those sort of stylistic narrative tools like there's a lot of fourth wall breaking there's a lot of you know just sort of slapstick humor but also they play with time quite a bit there's a lot of just just really really interesting cuts that that are made here so that's that's kind of what this is but the base the at the most basic the plot of this is that the monkeys, as a group, are trying to escape the Columbia Pictures lot that they're that they're filming the show on. <laughs> so it's a very meta film. Like they're, it's a film about this group who was in a TV show filming their TV show, but trying to get off of the picture lot. But also, parts of it are still the TV show. So it's it's very much a deconstruction of the show and of the monkeys as a group. And and by the way, the this movie is like, you know, got, I don't know, maybe five times as much going on as Fiddler on the Roof, but it's half the length. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff thrown at you, right? So how does deconstruction, right? That's that's really the best way to describe this movie. So what's, what, how, how do? Well, part of it, like I said, is this, is this meta way that they're talking about the monkeys. I mean, the monkeys has always been a little bit meta because the they're playing. So, as I mentioned last week, for those of you who maybe missed that episode, uh, Mike Nesmith, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolenz make up the monkeys. But they're sort of playing heightened versions of themselves. Uh, you know, this band, which was supposed to be a fictional band, but it ended up being a real band uh, that sold so many copies of of albums. They were. You know, besides the Beatles, they were one of the most popular bands of the 60s, even though they weren't supposed to be a real band. And so, you know, there's a lot there about, like, you know, the way there's a lot in this movie about the way that their success was really commercially driven instead of artistically driven. By the end of the show, you can definitely tell that a lot of the members of the band were checked out of the whole process. They didn't want to be there anymore. They were tired of the studio telling them what they could record and what they couldn't record and where they had to be. There was a rule at one point that no more than two monkeys could be in the re- recording studio at a time because they kept making too much trouble for the, uh, for the studio. So there, there was a lot of drama on the show. And this movie is really trying to address those, those issues. 
And what I thought was interesting is when I actually dove into this, like into the background of how this movie was made, this this movie was written by Rafelson, but it's based on things that the band actually said. Like one weekend they got together and they all got super, super high and they talked about being the monkeys into a tape recorder and then Rafelson wrote this script based on what they said, even though none of the monkeys are credited as writers on this film, which really upset them, actually. Like, they actually staged a strike. They wanted to walk out of, on the film because of that. So it, it's really interesting the ways in which they talk about fame, the ways in which they talk about uh, commercial success. It's very anti-capitalist in a lot of ways. Like, they compare being a band to being on a production assembly line, uh, just, you know, cranking out these pop hits that none of them really wanted to to do. They all wanted to do their own music. And I think it's worth remembering that all all of these musicians were all very different from each other, even though they were put together in this band. I mean, Mike Nesmith went on to be like a country rock star. Uh, Peter Tork was a folk musician. He was really big in the in the New York folk scene. Uh, Davy Jones was, of course, all he wanted to do was be a British pop star. Davy Jones was Davy Jones. Yeah, he just he just wanted to be the Beatles, and so you know <laughs> that that was his thing. And Mickey Dolenz was just sort of this cut up you know, child actor. And he was a great musician too, but you could see where all these different personalities, they didn't really want to be in a band together. And so that's kind of also what this movie is about. So, I mean, I know I just said a lot of things and I don't, I didn't even scratch the surface of what this film is. So there's a lot of pastiche of images and music. Um, like I said, the monkeys keep trying to escape the show, but they keep getting pulled back in by the show. They can't ever get off the lot. It's very anti-capitalist, anti-war. There's a lot of uh, Vietnam War images in this. Um, it's very also anti-police, which I think is really interesting. There's a lot of those sort of civil rights layers to this as well. And what else? What else do they do? Well, so so James, you mentioned the, the Hey, Hey, We Are the Monkeys theme song. Mm. Yeah, that's obviously something a lot of people know from the show, right? They're like, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. But this movie has a song that starts the exact same way, but it's like, a, it's called Diddy Diego. It's like a war chant, but it's like, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And then they go on this whole song about how like everything they make is fake and they, they put it out there, but then they take it back and like nobody knows who they are and it's all commercial. It's just such an interesting like look at how they felt about the show. And there were, I'll name some of the songs here. Um, there's the Porpoise song, because I do sing a lot. Um, the Diddy Diego, like I said, Circle Sky, Can You Dig It, As We Go Along, which was actually written by Carol King. So that's really interesting. Daddy's song, which was written by Harry Nielsen. Uh, do I Have to Do This All Over Again? So there's also some of those like pretty famous monkey songs in here as well. By the way, I think I think Davy Jones, rather than the Beatles, Davy Jones wanted to be Cliff Richard, I think. I think that was his like thing. Porpoise song, by the way, if you've seen Vanilla Sky, the Cameron Crowe film with uh, Tom Cruise, uh, Cameron Crowe reuses Porpoise song to really nice effect. I don't know. Uh, Peter Tork pieces out after this movie. This album, the soundtrack album, is the one he had the most involvement in. And then he left, uh, which I think is I think it's super interesting. Well, it's interesting because the movie's much better than the last season of the show is. Oh, yeah. But it's also the end of the monkeys as we know it. Like, they were all done after this movie. I think I was last week years old when I realized that uh, Rafelson and Schneider uh, used the money they made from the television show to make movies. And Head was the first of those movies and and so they continued using this money along with Jack Nicholson to make movies like Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, The Last Picture Show. I had no idea that 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 had I was such a fan of the monkeys. To me, that's just the end of the monkeys for a while. I had no idea it was the beginning of something else. I guess knowing that kind of changes how I feel about this question, but I want to know. This is kind of a, a niche thing, right? So would you recommend it? I would recommend it, but I actually think you need to watch the show or at least several episodes of the show in order to understand what they're doing in the movie. I think if you watched this movie without any understanding of who the monkeys were, it would be really hard to get some of the really clever things they do. Like in the show, if they didn't film enough material for an episode, 
they would do an interview with the monkeys at the end and they would always joke about it like oh we have to do, we have a minute left that we have to fill we let's do an interview and mickey dolan's hated those interviews you could tell but they make a joke about that in the in the film like oh if we don't have enough material we're gonna have to do an interview <laughs> so it you know if you don't if you don't know that information from the show i think it actually would be kind of difficult to understand what they're doing in the in the film but even if you just watched a handful of episodes and then watched this film i think i discovered a lot of music that i was not aware of by the monkeys that i am now putting onto playlists because they're it's just they they were really good musicians not all of them are great but some of the songs are really 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 special and so i would definitely recommend this to anyone who's a musical lover especially music of the 60s i think I, this made me want to watch some more movies by Rafelson and Schneider. Like this made me want to watch Easy Rider, which I haven't seen. We actually bought a whole box set based on what, just watching this movie because we were like, we want to watch these uh, this sort of movement of films that happened in the late '60s, early '70s. So, you know, if you're a film nerd, I think that you would like this too. All right, tune in next episode. Sam checks in to see where Neil Gaiman falls on the Templar debate with Marvel 1602. I will explore an abandoned mansion in the video game Gone Home. And I don't know, will Andy be with us? Will he not be with us? We're not, we're not completely sure. Again, he's on parental leave. So we'll, we'll see if he joins us and what he decides to check off his list next time. James, where can listeners of our podcast find you on social media? Uh, mainly on my Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at SpicyNigel. That's my main uh, method of communication with people. Uh, I make podcasts, like you mentioned earlier on, uh, Lesbianist and Archive Admirers, which is still in the developmental stage. They're linked in my bio. Apart from that, I, I don't really use any other social medias. That's perfect. All right. Sam, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can find me on Letterboxd under the same name. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog or email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts about what we discussed in this episode or anything else pop culture related that you have enjoyed recently. We always like adding to our list. Our theme song, Hot Shot by Scott Holmes, can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Help us help you get that monkey off your backlog.